Hey everyone, I'm Scott. I'm a pastor at Alpine Church, and I want to welcome you here today as we start a brand new series called The Church Has Left the Building. Now, March 15th was the first Sunday where we couldn't all meet together physically. That's when the COVID crisis really started taking off. And all of a sudden, we had to say, hey, we can't come together. We can't worship together. We weren't together on Easter. And just so you know, if you're, you haven't been a Christian very long, this is super unusual. We've never had anything like this before. And so what happened on March 15th is the church left the building. But here's the good news. We never stopped being the church. I hope you know that a church isn't just a building, right? The walls of a church, that's not the church. And it's a good thing that the church isn't just a building because not all of our Alpine Church campuses own their own buildings. And so what would that say if a church was just a building? Now, what the Bible tells us is that the church is people. You are the church. We are the church together. We make up God's church, God's people transformed, saved, and rescued by Jesus Christ, coming together to worship him, to be equipped by his word, and to go out into the world and to fulfill his mission and do his work. That's what it means to be the church. And so we've spent a lot of time the last few weeks thinking about what is the church all about? What does it mean to be a church? Because here's the thing, even though our church buildings haven't been opened, our work as the church has continued. We've continued to gather together via the internet, via online services. We've continued to meet in small groups and mentoring groups. And we've been involved in all kinds of different ministries out in our community as we've lovingly and safely shown people uh, God's grace and God's compassion. And so what we want to do is we want to look today at some of those essentials. And I want to begin by looking at the essential message of Christianity, the essential message of what Christianity is all about. And so what we're going to do in this series, we're going to go back to the book of Acts. We're going to look at the early chapters of Acts because Acts tells the story of the early Christian church. And when today we're going to look at Acts chapter two to see the essential message of Christianity. And here's what you should know. I want you to know that even though Christianity is 2000 years old, and it's gone all over the globe, and it's gone to all different kinds of languages and ethnic groups and races, and there have been churches that have met in all kinds of different ways, churches that have met in buildings like ours, churches that have met in cathedrals, churches that have met outside, in offices, in jails, at the mall, churches have met everywhere. And the one thing that all churches have in common is the essential message, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so whether you've been an Alpiner for years or maybe this is your first time with us, you're a guest here today, we're glad you're here. Maybe you're starting to get ready to come back and meet physically at an Alpine Church campus, which we're excited for that day. We're excited that, that we've begun to meet physically together again. But here's what we don't want to miss out on. We don't want to miss out on what really matters as a church, because God's intention is that the church always leaves the building as we go out into the world and show his love. So today I want to talk to you about the essential message. And to do that, let's look at Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter gives us the essential message of what Christianity is all about. And so I'm going to read that for you. Starting in verse 22, here's what it says. People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. 
But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us, just as you see and hear today. And then verse 36, So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. Okay, so that's the essential message of Christianity as found in the book of Acts. And I, I skipped a little bit there, uh, which would just give us a little bit more context, specifically for the Jewish people who heard that message that day when Peter delivered it. But here's what I want to do. I want to help you understand what that message is, break it down a little bit, and talk about what it means for you and me today. And so here's the first thing that we need to understand. The essential message is that Jesus came to rescue you. Jesus is Lord as demonstrated through his life, death, and resurrection from the dead. Let's, let's give you a little context for what's going on in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, Jesus has is, um, ascended. He's died on the cross, been raised from the dead. He was on earth on the earth 40 days. And after 40 days, he ascended up into heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father where he is today. And he told his disciples, his followers the 12 disciples, and then some other men and women who followed him. He said that he was going to send his Holy Spirit. He's going to pour his Holy Spirit out onto Christians. And so today, the day we're reading about is the day of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit has come. And the coming of the Holy Spirit was, was marked by all kinds of just amazing events, and we'll talk about those in future weeks. But then what happens is, Peter and the, and the disciples, they're in front of a great crowd of people, a huge crowd of Jewish people. And empowered by the Holy Spirit, Peter delivers this message in Acts chapter 2. And the first thing we see in this message is that it's a message about how Jesus came to rescue you. Now, here's the thing. When we talk about being rescued, you might have a question. Well, what do I need to be rescued from? Right? Because here's the thing. If someone's drowning in a pool, we know they need to be rescued, right? Someone needs to jump into the pool and rescue them from drowning. If someone's trapped in a burning building, they need to be rescued from that burning building, right? You got the fire, the fire department's got to get in there and it's got to rescue them. You got to pull them out of the burning building. But here we are living in Utah, living in comfortable homes. We have pretty comfortable lives. What do we need to be rescued from? Well, the Bible tells us the thing that we need to be rescued from is our sin. You see, sin is anytime we fall short of God's standard, anytime we go our own way. The Bible calls that sin. And the Bible says that we're in bondage to sin. We're in slavery to sin. And what that means is we have all these things in our life, all these things that we, that we spend our lives trying to go after. For some of us, it's money. For some of us, it's power. Uh, for some of it's us, it's, it's stuff, materialism. It could be sex, lust, alcohol, drugs. It could be all kinds of different things. But as humans, we chase after these things. And the Bible says we become slaves to them. And the Bible says that what we need is we need God to rescue us from those things. The Bible says that those are idols in our lives. An idol is anything that gets in the way of worshiping God. And we all have these things in our lives that, that something that is not inherently bad, like money, that can become the thing that just sort of directs our lives and can take all of our energy and all of our focus, and it becomes an idol. And the Bible says that when you make anything an idol, it's sin. 
And Jesus came to rescue us from our sins. And so that's what we need to understand, that you and I need to be rescued from our sins because God is a holy, perfect God, and he can't accept us as slaves to sin, as, as slaves to our idols. And so we need to be rescued. Now, that might be a surprising message for you. And guess what? It was a surprising message for the people who heard Peter that day because they didn't think they were slaves. They didn't think they were in bondage. They didn't think that they were lost in their sins until God's Holy Spirit opened their eyes to how they'd lived their lives. They thought, you know, we've got religion. We've got the Old Testament promises of God were good. But then they learned, no, they still had a, a problem inside of them. And you and I, we all have a problem inside of us. The Bible calls it sin that separates us from God. And so Jesus came to rescue us from, from our sins. Well, how did he do that? He did that through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And that's what Peter explains to us in that message. I want to look at a few more of these verses. In, in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Peter talks about the signs and wonders, the miracles that God did in the life of Jesus. If you read about the stories of Jesus, you see that he performed miracles. He walked on water and raised people from the dead and cast out demons and, and healed people of their diseases. And all of those were a sign about who Jesus is, that he was God's savior for the entire world. He's the Lord of the world. That's who Jesus is. And so Jesus's life, not only was it a life filled with miracles, but it was also a life that was sinless. Jesus never... He never had an idol in his life. He never sinned. He never failed to do what God told him to do. He was completely sinless. Of course, the life of Jesus, it ends abruptly. And that's what we see in verse 23. It says this, but God knew what would happen. And his, his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. You see, what the Bible is saying here is that when Jesus was a relatively young man, about 33 years old, he was arrested. He was betrayed. You see, Jesus was innocent. He didn't do anything wrong, but he was arrested by the Jewish religious leaders. They made up some charges that weren't true. They put him through a, a, a trial that was just a sham, and they illegally prosecuted him, found him to be guilty, and they convinced the Roman authorities to crucify him on the cross. And that's what that means when it says lawless Gentiles, the Romans, they crucified him with the work and the help of the religious leaders. But what I want you to see here is that you might read the story of Jesus and think, oh no, this is such a terrible tragedy. Jesus has failed, but that's not at all what's happened. What the Bible says is what has happened is that God knew this was going to happen and God's plan was going to be worked in such a way that even though e humans would make evil choices, even though the humans would choose to crucify the Son of God, it was all part of God's plan. And we know that's true because Jesus didn't stay dead. The next verse, verse 24, tells us that Jesus was raised from the dead. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in, his, in its grip. You see, the Bible says that after three days, Jesus was raised from the dead to show us that he really is the Son of God, the Lord and Savior of the world, to show us that he really paid the penalty for our sins and he paid the debt that we owed to God, that he really breaks us from life that's controlled by idolatry and sin. And just like Jesus lived a new life after the resurrection, so you and I can live a new life too. And then as we've already said, after the resurrection, what happens 
It says that Jesus ascended into heaven. God raised Jesus from the dead. And we are all witnesses of this, Peter says, me and all the other disciples. And now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us, just as you see and hear today. And so what what Peter is saying, that this is the message This is the eternal, life-giving, saving message that you and I can have salvation and forgiveness of our sins by believing in Christ and trusting in him. That Jesus died to pay for the sins that you and I commit. This is the message of Jesus unchanged for 2,000 years. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing that Christianity has gone through so many countries, so many centuries? It's traveled all over the globe, and the core message remains the same. When we go out into the world, when we leave the building of the church and we tell people about God's love, this is the message that we want to deliver. Now, when Peter delivers that message, he sums it all up by saying, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In other words, he, under, he wants everyone to understand that, that Jesus is the Savior, the Savior of the entire world, and he delivers this message to thousands of people that day. And what is their response? What, is, what do they say in response to Peter? Because he just puts that message out there. Peter's words pierced their hearts. That ever happened to you? Have you ever been at church maybe and heard the Bible explained and it pierced your heart? Maybe you're in a small group or having a conversation with a friend, a mentor, and something they said pierced your heart. Well, that's what happens here. The, the words of Peter pierced their hearts, and they said to him and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? We're guilty. We're guilty of crucifying Jesus. We're guilty of sin before God. And maybe you're here today, and you're thinking the same thing. What do I do? What do I do if I'm guilty of sin before a loving God who sent his son to die for me? Well, here's the reality. There's three ways to respond to this message. There's three different ways that we as humans can respond to the essential message of Christianity. And the first way is this. The first, I should say, of those three responses, two are bad, two are wrong, and and one's the correct one. And we're going to get to the correct one. But the first wrong response is religion. It's religion. By religion, I mean trying to do good works in order to be made right with God. Trying to work hard at being a good person or being a religious person in order for God to accept you. This is sometimes called legalism. And it's a problem that that really affects almost all of us as humans. We recognize there's a problem. We recognize that God has set a standard or we have an internal standard of right or wrong inside of us, even if we never grew up going to church. We know that we don't live up to that standard. We know we've lied, we've stolen, we've cheated, we've done these things that make us feel bad. And so maybe we try to deal with our our bad choices by trying to be a good person, a religious person. But the the problem is that's that's never going to get us to God. That's just man-made religion. That's just legalism. You see, what God wants for you is not, not that you'd be a religious person. What he wants for you is that you'd have a relationship with him. In fact, I was just having a conversation recently with a friend of mine uh, who I, I mentor, and we were having some conversations about his kids. And he was telling me about his kids, and he was telling me about his teenage son. And his son is at a place where he doesn't really want to attend church with the family, isn't really interested in that. 
And this guy, who had a lot of concerns for his son, and I get that, I'm a father, I got four kids, and I know what it's like to have concerns for your children and their spiritual choices they're going to make in the future. And this guy, he just said, you know, my son doesn't want to go to church, but here's the, here's the thing, he's like, you know, my son, he knows it's wrong to, to drink. He knows it's, it's wrong to, to smoke, you know. He, he's underage, and he's, he's like, I know, he knows it's wrong to smoke, and it, it's wrong to, to curse. And he's just talking about all these things that his son knows is wrong and his son doesn't do. And he's like, even though he doesn't want to go to church, he, he does these things. So I know he still believes in God. That's kind of what he was getting at. And what I tried to lovingly explain to my friend is that's religion, <laughs> That's not biblical Christianity to say that here's a list of rules and as long as I follow these rules, I'm good with God. That's religion. What God wants for us is a relationship with him. Well, God, and it's not that God doesn't care about what you do. We're going to get to that in just a moment. But if your response to God, if your response to Jesus is, okay, now I know how to work my way back up to God. I need to go to church. I need to sign up for kids' church. I need to give. I need to just follow a checklist of rules. That's religion. That's legalism. That's a wrong response to the message of Christianity. Let me tell you the second wrong response. The second wrong response is relativism. Relativism. By relativism, here's what I mean. I mean, it's a sense of believing that since I'm saved, it doesn't matter what I do. It's a belief that since I've accepted Jesus as my savior, everything I do is relative because God has saved me. Therefore, I can live however I want. And almost as much as I meet the people with a legalistic attitude, I meet people with this kind of relativism attitude too. People who say, wait, so if I accept the message of Christianity, I can live however I want. You know, God's got my back. Jesus has got my back. So I can kind of, I can just go out and party and indulge myself in whatever I want because Jesus has already saved me. In fact, I remember one conversation I had with a guy and I was explaining to him, to him the message of salvation. I was explaining to him who Jesus is. I, I explained to him the good news, just like we did a few minutes ago. And he said, so I can, I can, all I have to do is say, I believe in Jesus. And if I say, I believe in Jesus, then I can, you know, basically go and do whatever I want. And he listed some things that he had wanted to do, but didn't do because he thought they were wrong. But he's like, if I become a Christian, I can now go do those things. And I was like, you know, I understand why you, why you think that, but that's not what the message of the Bible is. That is using God's grace, God's help as a license, as permission to sin. And that's not what God wants for you. You see, the Bible says, yes, it is about Jesus from beginning to end. God saved you. Jesus saved you. He died on the cross for your sins, was raised from the dead. Salvation is a work of God's grace in your life, but you don't, once you become a Christian, go out and live however you want and do whatever you want. That's a total wrong response to God. Instead, the Bible says that when you put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you live a life to honor God, not to try to qualify for heaven, but so that you can show him how much you appreciate him and thank him for what he's done in your life. You live a life of gratitude. So two wrong responses to the gospel, to the good news, the essential message. One is religion or legalism. The other is relativism. And now I know what you're thinking. Well, what's the right response, Scott? <laughs> you know, what, what did they say? Brothers to the apostles, they said, brothers, what must we do to be saved? And here's what the answer. The right response to the essential message is faith. The essential message of Christianity that Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead, the right response, the response that God wants you and I to have is faith. It's to trust in him 
for the forgiveness of your sins. In fact, it's a two-sided, there's a two-sided coin that I like to call it, kind of a, a, a two-pronged response that happens in our lives of faith and repentance. And that's what the Apostle Peter says in verse 38. This is how he answers the question. Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see what what Peter's telling us, what God's telling us, what his Holy Spirit is telling us is that the way to respond to God is by trusting in him for the forgiveness of your sins. It's not just merely saying, oh yeah, I agree with that. You know, I agree with those facts. Like, yes, I can, I can pass a Bible Jeopardy quiz. Jesus died for my sins. He was raised from the dead after three days. He was born in Bethlehem, you know, whatever it is. That's not the point here. The point isn't just to have sort of theoretical, intellectual knowledge of God, but it's in your heart, in the, the part of you, the deepest part of you, to trust in Jesus and believe that he is who he says he is and that you put all of your hope and all your trust in him. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. And even though Peter doesn't use the faith language here, he uses it all over the place. In verse 21, he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who says, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe that he died on the cross for me and was raised from the dead. Everyone, no matter who you are, no matter what your background is, you will be saved. Verse 41 talks about those who in response to this message believed. They trusted in Christ. And so the Bible says the the way you come to God is by faith and with an attitude of repentance. Repentance means to change your mind. When When he tells you, each one of you must repent, it means each one of us needs to change our mind. It's a turning around, a changing of direction. One way to think about it is got four kids when my kids are little and they've just learned how to ride a bike. One of the things they all love to do, they love to get in our driveway and they love to go down our driveway, pick up speed and go into the street. And I always tell them, stop, stop. You can't just like go off into the street like that. Cause what do you gotta do? You gotta look and you gotta see where you're going. And sometimes there's been a few times and parents, you've probably been here. This, is, this happens to parents sometimes where your kids start going out on, into the street on their bike or to chase a ball and there's a car coming and you're like, you need to stop and you need to turn around. You need to come back to me where it's safe. And that kind of reminds me a little bit of how repentance works because repentance means you recognize you're going the wrong way. You're going away from God and you need to stop and you need to turn around. And that's repentance. And then as you start to come back to God, that's what the Bible calls the fruit of repentance. And so Peter said to those who are listening, it's time to trust in Jesus and it's time to repent, to stop trying to be God in your own life and instead follow him. And Peter says, look what happens when you repent of your sins and you turn to Jesus in faith. You're baptized. That's the public sign to the world that you're a follower of Jesus. You get dunked in the water as a symbolic way to show that you identify and are, are one with Christ. You not only receive baptism, you receive the forgiveness of your sins. Remember, that's how we started talking about how you and I need to be rescued in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. God no longer holds your sins against you. How does that make you feel? That makes me feel amazing to know that God doesn't hold the evil things I do against me. And then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you also receive God's presence inside of you, the Holy Spirit. So what's the response, the right response to the message 
the essential message of Christianity, it's faith. Trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Before this moment, there were about 120 Christians in the whole world, but 120 followers of Jesus. After this moment, Acts tells us that about 3,000 people were added to the church that day. 3,000 people in one day put their faith in Jesus. And so let me close with this. What about you? Have you trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you put your faith in him? Have you turned around and said, I'm going in the wrong direction? I need to come back to God. And if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, I hope that when you hear this message, the first thing you say is, thank you, Lord, that you have rescued me. I'm so unworthy. And I hope that, that the cry of your heart is, is, Jesus, thank you that you've saved me. And I want to share this message with as many people as I can. And I hope the other thing you say to yourself is, you look at your life and say, every day, my trusting in Jesus, my putting my trust in him new every day, and my repenting in those areas where God wants me to repent. That's the essential message of Christianity. Let's embrace it. Let's make it our own. And let's share it with the world. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come together today before your word, we are in awe of the awesome, powerful message of salvation in Jesus Christ. I pray that we would not overly complicate things or water this message down or make it harder to understand than it needs to be or in some way confuse people, Lord, but would every single one of us hear the message of salvation that is available in Jesus Christ. And I pray that anyone who is hearing my words now, if they've not yet put their full trust in you, would they do that today? We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.